I invite you to turn now to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. In this passage, we have uh, Paul's first prayer in his letter to the Ephesians. There are actually two such prayers, and we have his first one in this particular passage. We began a consideration of this prayer last week, and we're going to pick up Paul's words again in verse 18. But in order to put the words we're going to be considering this morning in their larger context, I'm going to begin reading once again at verse 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Uh, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray. Eternal Father, whose dwelling place is the source of heavenly light, we ask that you would send forth your light and your truth that every secret fear in our hearts might be consoled by your presence and your goodness. Give to us now your Holy Spirit that we might know the joy of your abiding presence with us Grant to us the spirit of truth that we might dwell in the shelter of the Most High and abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. In the book of 2 Kings, we read that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and he brought Judas king Zedekiah with him to the capital city in Babylon. Zedekiah had lost his throne. Zedekiah had been uprooted from his homeland and he was brought now as a prisoner to a foreign city. But oh, what a foreign city it was. Babylon was a city of glory and riches. It was a city of great halls and palaces. The hanging gardens in Babylon were one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Zedekiah might have consoled himself with 
the sights of his new home city. But he could not because Nebuchadnezzar had put out his eyes. And so Zedekiah was destined to live out his existence in the darkness among the glories and the splendors of Babylon. Sight is necessary to see glory. And so Paul prays that God would enlighten the eyes of the Ephesian believers so that they might see the glory and riches and wealth that is theirs in knowing God with ever greater clarity. The natural man, because of the darkness of his heart, is tragically blind to the glories and to the beauties of knowing God. His eyes have been put out, if you will. By his sin, Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Paul, of course, is praying here not for unbelievers, but for believers, members of God's kingdom. But doesn't Paul's prayer show us that we too, who have been born of the Spirit, are in need of ongoing illumination by God? Our spiritual eyes must be increasingly corrected so that we might see and appreciate and enjoy the wealth of our inheritance, which consists in knowing God. And what is it that God must open our eyes increasingly to? One thing is our hope. Our hope. Christianity is knowing God. And knowing God, we must ever distinguish between what the old divines called speculative knowledge and experiential knowledge. Speculative knowledge is what we learn in the classroom. Experiential knowledge is what we learn when we put what we know to practice. Now, it's possible... <clears throat> It's possible, as we've said before, <clears throat> to have a great deal of intellectual knowledge of God and yet not know him deeply in a personal, experiential sense. Knowing God is more than knowing about God. Knowing God involves dealing with God and it involves being dealt with by God. Friends open their hearts up to one another by what they say and by what they do. And all that is involved in knowing God experientially. We might call this heart knowledge, which is what Paul is praying the Ephesians would grow in. He is praying, he says, that the Ephesians would grow in their heart knowledge of God. And part of that heart knowledge is experientially knowing the hope of our calling. Experiential hope is Christian hope, and Christian hope, Paul says, is built on this foundation of our calling from God. Now let's break this down. First, the nature of one's calling. The nature of one's calling. What's Paul mean by the hope of our calling? Well, think of a call as an interruption. Think of calling as an intrusion that gets another person's attention. If you and I are engaged in face-to-face -face conversation, then I don't have to call.
call you, do I? Because I already have your attention. You and I are involved in interpersonal communication. But we call people when we want to get their attention. Perhaps we call to them when we see them across the room. Or again, perhaps we text someone or we call them on our phone because we want to get their attention. Now, if you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, the only explanation for that from the Bible's perspective is that God called you. God sought you out. God got your attention. God intruded himself into your mind and your spirit, and he called you into an interpersonal relationship with himself through personal faith in Jesus. Jesus put it this way. He said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. That's the nature of calling. And then there is the assurance of one's calling. Now that's the aspect of calling that Paul's driving at here. He, he wants us to go beyond a theoretical knowledge of calling as we might gain in a classroom to an experiential knowledge. And why is that? It's because to be called by God is to be saved by God. And what Paul says here, he refers to the hope of our calling that is that part of our salvation that we are still looking forward to in the future. It is that part of our salvation in knowing God that we have yet to enter fully into. The hope of our calling is nothing less than life in the new heaven and the new earth, life in the presence of God, the anticipation of God looking on us in glory and being pleased, oh so pleased with how he has conformed us to the likeness of Christ. The hope of our calling involves the giving and the receiving of love and joy in God that is no longer hindered in any way by weakness of mind and body. It consists of knowing God face to face in Christ as the bridegroom of the church. It consists, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, in knowing God fully even as we have been known fully by God. That is the hope. And that is the inheritance. Every child of God from the least to the greatest should have. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of Liverpool, used to say that an assurance of one's call and salvation will make you as bold as a lion and as light as a soaring bird. You see, the assurance of your salvation is the conviction that the great disease, which is sin, has been healed, the great debt has been paid, the great promise has, problem has been solved, all other problems, all other diseases that you and I face in this world, all other debts are mere mosquito bites in comparison to this sure hope we have of knowing God. Now, do you know the hope of your calling merely as a theoretical possibility? Or do you know it as an experiential certainty? And if not, how can you? Here's one way not to seek the assurance of your salvation. Here's one way not to do it. 
I read of a young minister, and this young minister told his audience, he said, I, a lot of you have trouble being assured you are Christians, assured your sins are forgiven, and that God loves you and cares for you. So, the minister said, here's what you should do. Go someplace, maybe outside, and say, Lord, if I have never received you as Savior and Lord before, I do it now. If I've never given my heart to you, I do it now. Then he says, at that spot, drive a stake into the ground and put on that stake the date that you really gave yourself to Christ. And then if you wonder, am I a Christian? I wonder if God loves me. If I'm forgiven, go outside and look at the stake and say to yourself, I gave myself to Christ there. Now, my friends, as well-intended as that is, it's not entirely helpful. There's a sense in which it's even opposite of what Paul is referring here by this knowing of one of the hope of one's calling. Now, for one thing, note that Paul prays that the Spirit of God will grant this hope to the Ephesian believers. Assurance of one's salvation is based not so much on what I do as it is on what I have been given by God. I have been given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of my inheritance, Paul said earlier. But something more, and this is very important, this whole way of thinking is so terribly man-centered, whereas salvation is, is Christ-centered. You know, when I struggled with the assurance of my salvation, it did not really help me to tell myself well, I walked forward at Grace Church on such and such a day. Didn't help me a great deal to say that I prayed such and such a prayer when someone shared a particular evangelistic track with me. You see, thinking that way throws us back on ourselves. It throws us back on our efforts rather than on the grace of God. And salvation is his gift to me in love in Christ. You see, thinking that way leaves me thinking that maybe I should walk forward again. Or maybe I should pray the prayer again. And this time I should resolve to really mean it. But do you hear the problem in these kinds of conversations that we can have with ourselves, how quickly we make what we have done? I walked down the aisle. I drove the stake into the ground. I prayed the prayer. Oh, I really meant it. We make these things that we have done into works we hope God will accept and will qualify us for salvation. And it's a fool's errand. Because the entire thrust of Paul's counsel is not to look at myself, not to look at what I might have done, not to look at what I could have done, but to look at what God has done for sinners in undeserved love and to know 
what Christ has done for whosoever will have him. By faith and not by works. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Jesus promised, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you hear in that promise how salvation is a gift for us to receive freely from Christ and not something that we have to keep trying to qualify ourselves for. My friends, it's simply enough to recognize your need for Christ. And it's simply enough to obey His generous invitation to come to Him and to embrace Him as yours by faith in His promise. Let us glance at ourselves, but let us gaze on Christ. Let us not be absorbed with ourselves and our efforts, but rather let us be absorbed with Christ's love for sinners and of his willingness to receive any and all who come to him as he has called us to do. You see, in that way, we know experientially the hope of our call. And then the second thing, our riches. Paul prays that the Ephesians would know the riches of the spiritual inheritance God gives to his children. And what exactly is this inheritance Paul's referring to? Well, that's a matter of discussion. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about that. It goes like this. Is, Is Paul saying that We are the inheritance that God delights in, or perhaps as he's saying and referring to the inheritance that we have in God. I mean, is Paul saying we're God's inheritance, or he is saying that God is our inheritance? And in the Old Testament, you see the concepts concept of inheritance being used in both senses. On one hand, God's chosen people are the inheritance that he delights in. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage, the psalmist says. But on the other hand, God himself is the inheritance of his people. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist says within the context of this passage, Paul's probably referring to the inheritance that we have in knowing God. He certainly meant that back in verse 11. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter because you see at the end of the day, both are true and either sense implies the other. But you see, here's the more basic issue. This is fascinating to me. Here's the more basic issue. Why must the Holy Spirit open our eyes to see the riches of our inheritance? Because I think appreciating and seeing and perceiving our inheritance, whether it consists of our knowing God or his delighting in us, gives us dignity and it gives us security. Consider your dignity, child of God. Consider your dignity. 
Isn't it glorious to think that the Father considers us to be the rich inheritance he has gained for himself in Christ? Child of God, you, you are God's treasured possession. Are you not, maybe not so sure about that? Well, think about it this way. Reason, if you will, according to the gospel with me. People may pay great sums of money for the things that they love and they treasure. And child of God, the Father paid a mighty price to have you as his child. He gave his beloved son to hell on the cross, to the very hell that you deserve. He gave his son to that hell in order to have you as his child. That was a mighty price. And do you see now the dignity that is ours because our heavenly father cherishes us so? And consider your security, child of God. Security is ours because you see God guards those things he treasures. He guards them. He cares for those he treasures. Since God is our inheritance, it follows as well that all the resources of heaven are our inheritance as well. Think about it. His mercy, his providence, his power, his provision, everything that is necessary for us. And that knowledge strengthens us in our trials, doesn't it? Because we know that our trials are not greater than the provision that God has promised to provide. Yes, we experience trials, but we need not despair when we experience trials. The Spirit gives us eyes to see beyond this world to the riches of heaven where our help is found. And that is why Paul wrote the Philippians, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The riches of God's grace are great, but what shall we say about the riches of God's glory? In his great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan tells of his hero, Christian. And Christian, after climbing the hill of difficulty, stays for a rest at the palace beautiful. And, and there Christian receives instruction as well as a shield and a sword. And he is refreshed now. And he is ready once again to resume his journey to the celestial city. But before he does, the caretakers of the palace take him to its roof so that he can gaze far ahead now to his final destination. And he is able to just see from the roof this lovely, pleasant-looking, mountainous country, beautiful with, with woods and vineyards and fruits of all kinds. He sees flowers and, and springs and fountains, and they are a delight to behold so he asks the name of the country, and he's told it is Emmanuel's land. It's the inheritance of the children of God. And so that sight of the land, its riches embolden him for the troubles that now lay ahead of him in the valley. 
And the same is true for us. May the Spirit of God open the eyes of our hearts that we may gain a spiritual apprehension of the glorious riches that are ours in Christ. The sight will embolden us for the trials of our pilgrimage to Emmanuel's land because once again we realize our dignity and our security in the hands of our God. And then a final thing, our power. We need spirit-illumined eyes of faith so that we may be assured of the power that is already at work in all of God's children, great and small. How great is the power at work in the believer? Paul says it is as great as Christ's present reign over every other rule and authority and power and dominion. Note how he breaks this down for us in verse 19. He says that the power at work in us is the same power that was revealed in Christ's resurrection from the dead and exaltation and glory. And he also says it's the same one presently being exercised by Christ as Lord over all. Now, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that Paul uses Christ's resurrection, exaltation, and session in heaven as the measure of the power at work in us rather than some other illustration of power? I don't know, like in hurricane, for instance. I mean, we are in hurricane season. Uh, we have been reminded once again of their great power by what happened in Florida. I mean, wouldn't a hurricane be an appropriate picture of God's power? Well, not in this case. Because you see, a hurricane is nothing, nothing, nothing in comparison to the power of God that Christ wields for our benefit now as Lord over all. Christ reigns over the hurricanes. I mean, they are nothing in comparison to his power. And that is good news, isn't it? Because think about it. What's the most formidable power that threatens you and me? It's the power of death. It's the power of death. I mean, all of us are dying. We are knee deep in death every day. You and I are surrounded by it. Everything is wearing down and decaying and disintegrating. I wonder if we've really faced up to that. And you see the great destructive power we are not just facing, but experiential experiencing is death. Death at work in our world, death at work in our members. We experience the power. What we need is to experience the power of new life, overwhelming the power of death at work. And that power is what we know in Christ. Christ, by his resurrection, exaltation, and session, has triumphed over death for those who are joined to him by faith. And it's very reassuring that Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ, and he also says that Christ's life fills it with life. And that sounds, I think, very much like the Lord Jesus said in the upper room where, according to John 15, he compared the church to a branch joined to the trunk so that the life of the trunk is in the branch, causing it to bear fruit. And so there are two applications that we can make. 
in Christ, in Christ, we experience his power to save us. In Christ, we experience his power to save us. The Holy Spirit puts forth in Christ nothing short of divine power. Now, what shall we say of those who say that the conversion of sinners is accomplished simply by the free will of man according to his ability? What should we say to them? Well, when we see dead men rising from the grave by the exercise of their own free will, then we may expect to see those dead in sin turning to Christ by their own free will. It's not simply the word preached or taught or read that saves. All the life-giving power necessary proceeds from the Holy Spirit. And as we have said before, this saving power from the Holy Spirit is effectual. It is irresistible when it goes forth. All the soldiers, all the high priests could not keep the body of Christ in the tomb. Even death itself could not keep Christ in the tomb. As the power that raised Christ was irresistible, so the power put forth from God when he raises a sinner to new life and faith in Jesus is irresistible. There is no sin, there is no failure, there is no corruption, not even the hosts of hell can restrain the power of God when he sends it forth calling a sinner from death to life by illumining a sinner's mind in the knowledge of his sin and of God's free gift of salvation in Christ. I wonder if God might have illumined a sinner's mind of his or her need for Christ this morning. And if so, my friend, if so, even as Lazarus came forth from his tomb at Jesus' command, Jesus commands you now. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe in Jesus as the Lamb of God slain for your sins. Receive him as your Savior, raised triumphant from the grave to give you indestructible new life. Receive him as your generous Lord whom you now delight to serve. But also in Christ we experience his power to sanctify us. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, Paul writes in the, his letter to the Romans. Even so, we being raised from the dead cannot go back to our dead works. We cannot go back to our old corruptions. Because being united to the risen one, we live to God. Because he lives, we also live, the word of God says. The same power which raised Christ, the head, works life in the members of his body. Oh, my friends, what a blessing to be empowered together as the body and as the fullness of Christ. Amen. Let us pray.
Almighty God, we thank you for enlightening our minds and hearts through this prayer of Paul's for the Ephesians as to the blessings, the inheritance we have in knowing you. And we thank you for the riches of our inheritance that are kept in heaven for us. And we thank you for the power that is already at work in us. Father, save those who don't know you. And Father, sanctify those who do. By your wonderful power to us in Jesus. Amen.